This is Rob. This is episode 40 of the Folly Coffee Podcast. Let's get it brewing. All right, this is an episode I've been trying to line up for a while. I am sitting across from Alexander French of the Busy Coffee. Busy Coffee for Busy People. Busy Coffee for Busy People. B-I-Z-Z-Y. Specializing in cold brewed coffees, but it's stressful to follow you personally on Instagram because I feel like I'm getting a lot done, and when I follow you, it makes me feel like I'm not doing anything. In the past week, I've seen you launch two new blends of ground coffee to do for cold brew. I've seen cold brew packets. You're the number one selling cold brew on Amazon. We just launched a week ago. I have no idea what's going on there. And so really excited to have you on today to talk about Amazon, the start of busy kind of how uh, I think you and Andrew have an awesome story. I've kind of uh, seen articles written about you through the years. And to start, I'd love to just have you give your background, what led you to want to start busy coffee uh, and let you run away with it. Yeah, so a lot of very similar to most founder stories starts with a passion for the product. Going back all the way to the beginning, really been an entrepreneur since the beginning, really as a kid. Um, started, you know, mowing lawns, shoveling driveways. If you remember the show Recess, there was that hustler kid, right? Yeah. He had the trench coat and he was always slinging stuff. And that, <laughs> that was me, right? So would buy and sell Beanie Babies, did this like my whole childhood, spawn action figures, just like buying stuff, going to swap meets, selling it on eBay. Um, went to college for finance and entrepreneurship. Um, always really wanted to be an entrepreneur. That was the textbook dream. Uh, none of my, no entrepreneurs in my family whatsoever. Mm. So really had no idea what I was doing. Very risk averse family. So did your parents think it was weird as a kid that you're like slinging, you're hustling and they're like, where did this come from? Yeah, I think so. Cause I mean, nobody had like, my dad's an engineer, very conservative and I mean, engineer, just as you would expect. Yeah. Very like, um, soft-spoken guy and my mom um you know works hard social but like no hustlers like just does not exist in my family so totally black sheep like literally no extended family entrepreneurship or sales so who knows where it came from that's wild um, but i do look like my brother so we have that going for us um see i'm the opposite <laughs> i i come from a family of like a bunch of entrepreneurs and i mm-hmm. don't look like any of them <laughs> classic just switching right there yeah um, but yeah, so always kind of been hustling, selling stuff and went to college, really wanted to be an entrepreneur. That was my focus. Where'd you go to school? Uh, University of St. Thomas. Oh yeah. So that was the plan. And then I got into, I don't know, my sophomore year or whatever. My parents were like, um, what, so you're joking with this entrepreneurship thing, right? Like you're not actually going to do it. Cause like, you don't know what the hell you're doing. And so I came in with a bunch of AP credits. I was pretty good at math and I liked money. So it was like, okay, maybe I'll do finance. So I went down the finance path alongside entrepreneurship. Um, I did investment banking, M&A as an intern, and it was specifically for middle market companies. So most of these companies that um, we were like engaged to work with were almost always entrepreneur founded and run. Because there was the definition of middle market is between 50 and 500 million, which is insanely large, but apparently that's called middle market. <laughs> and a lot of these are like old manufacturing businesses. And I was going and, through this. M&A is mergers and acquisitions, right? Exactly. Okay, right. Yeah. Yep. Or in some movie, I think they call it murders and acquisitions, but it's basically like the same thing. So we were selling these companies. I'm working a hundred hours a week, really like hating my job and my life, you know, not sleeping at all. And as an intern, it was like a sexy um, job, but no work-life balance. My girlfriend broke up with me like three times. So did that. It was like, okay, 
it's just pushed me further to entrepreneurship because I was seeing all of these like guys running manufacturing companies and then selling them for oodles of money. And I was like, that's really like what I wanted to do it. And that just like pushed me even harder that way. So graduated college, I had a room, uh, Andrew is my co-founder, best friend, his roommate reached out to me. He was at the U of M and he's like, Hey, I'm working on this idea. And I had to do a, like a capstone project, which is write a business plan. Mm -hmm. So we wrote a business plan and it was his idea. It was for a green skimboarding company. So it was basically like a wood board that was like biodegradable. And so we like wrote the business plan and I was like, all right, screw it. I'm doing, I'm going to move to California after school with this dude. And like, we're going to launch grow skimboards. And that was the plan. And I was sales, marketing, finance. He was operations. He was the craft guy that I wanted to like make the product. And um, it's really important who you work with. They don't really talk about founder divorce as the number one reason businesses fail. But basically this guy just got high all the time and like never ended up making the product. So <laughs> I'm graduated. But it's the that that's good for the brand though. It's oh, chill. Man, the brand was so chill, dude. He you just gotta just, have a sweet brand and then everything else gets and done. And then it works, right? So basically I graduated expecting to do this startup, moved to California. That was like the plan. Like everybody knew it. And then this dude just totally bailed. So now I'm graduated. I'm like, holy shit, what am I going to do with my life now? So I took the first job I could get, took a job at Best Buy doing supply chain as an analyst. Um, it was at that moment that I was like, okay, this, this sucks. I really hate this. I was in spreadsheets all day and was just like, I need an idea. And Andrew and I um, moved in together as roommates in Uptown. And we were just like tinkering constantly working on things. He's an engineer. My dad's an engineer. I like building things. So we were like looking at all these ideas. And a while back, I had this idea for a snowboarding accessory that would, when you ride the chairlift, you have to um, take one of your feet off the, the, the board and it like can ruin your boot or cause some pain. So we made this little widget essentially that would go on the chairlift or go on your snowboard for when you're on the trip. It was called the lifty awesome brand, like the brand amazing. Still get people asking for stickers and t-shirts to this day. Um, but the product for a multitude of reasons failed. But through that, while I was at Best Buy, I fell in love with marketing. I was like, okay, I love branding. I love marketing, consumer insights, like learning about trends and predicting the future. I need to get into marketing. So I took a job over at General Mills and I was a marketing associate or excuse me, marketing analyst at the beginning there. And basically just doing like data analysis, looking at this thing called um, Nielsen data. So whenever a product is sold at a register, it gets cataloged in this massive database of data. And I was basically looking at that sales data for the Cheerios brand. And I would just send a report every Monday of like, are we up? Are we down? Which region's doing good? Which demographics doing bad, et cetera. So I had access to all this data. And it was at this time that Andrew and I were doing this 24 hour race called the world's toughest mutter, mm -hmm. which is like stupid, right? You're climbing, you're crawling in mud, you're jumping off cliffs for it's 24, 24 hours. hours. I mean, <laughs> It was like the hardest thing I've ever done. And it was such a good met metaphor for entrepreneurship. Go into that race a little bit more because I I knew you a bit and I kind of did my first Tough Mudder just because I think you and I are pretty like-minded and just like totally. challenges. And I was like, yeah, it was pretty, you know, it was eight to 10 miles. It was tough. Had to train for it, not a runner. And you're like, oh yeah, I did the I did the toughest mudder. And I was like, what is that? Explain that race because that was it's wild. Yeah, so it was basically like a, it was a five mile lap. So it was shorter in distance than the regular Tough Mudder, but there was twice as many obstacles in that like distance. So um, the first year we did it, it was in um, New Jersey and it's in November. So it's freezing cold. So the average temperature was like 40 degrees. 
And basically it's, you do this a five mile lap and you just go as many times as you can in 24 hours, whoever goes the furthest wins. Is it a team event or is it an individual? It's, it's both. Okay. We, we did the team event. Okay. Um, one thing about me as an entrepreneur is I'm like, a, I'm a good leader, but I got to have a team with me. So yeah. I, I would have, there's no way I would have been able to finish it by myself. So we did the team event with, um, Andrew and then two other dudes that were just as crazy as we are that I worked with at Best Buy. One of them is now our national sales manager. So it's funny how that happens. Um, but we did this race. And so basically you have a five mile lap and there's 20 to 22 obstacles, depending on like which year it is. And so you're jumping off a 40 foot cliff, you're crawling under barbed wire and there's even like mental challenges. Well, they'll like give you this riddle and then you either go left or right. And one of the sides that you go down, if you go right, is electrocuted and one of the sides may not be, but it switches every like 30 minutes. So you have no idea which side's gonna get electrocuted. And the questions are stupid. It's like, what came first, the chicken or the egg? And you just gotta pick a path. And after like 12, 18 hours of this shit, you're just like, <laughs> the last thing you wanna do is get electrocuted. You're just so sick of it. Yeah. And sometimes there's like, and by um, the way, those electrocutions, they, they do not mess around with no, that because they are real. I did it alone because my friends bailed. Uh, and, Bad man. and so I ended up just finding a few, I, there's one where you had to have somebody who's roughly your size. And so I found a guy that was my size and I ended up running with them the rest of the thing. And you get to the electrocution thing and I'm like, oh, I want to do it. Cause I've never done. It. They're like, all right, you do you, man, we're good. And I was like, that seems weird that you wouldn't want to do it. And then I did it and I was like, that's not messing around. And so to do that for 24 hours, how many times? Plus you're getting wet. You're getting wet. You're freezing cold. So you're wearing a wetsuit for like 80% of it. And like it got so bad. And it, the first year it was in New Jersey, it was super cold. Um, but it was like, it was super cold. But we didn't know what we were doing. The second year we we like got Wheaties to sponsor us because I was at General Mills. So I was like, nice, pay us, right? Because they were sponsoring Tough Mudder. So we're like, you're not sponsoring this, sponsor us. And so we had like a coach and it was a team, like it was freaking legit. And after like 18 hours of it, you're so tired and like you, there's a pit, right? And it's basically a tent every, you can pit as long as you want. Again, it's just like, go as far as you can. You have 24 hours, but you want to make the pit as short as possible. So we tracked everything in the pits every single time. It just kept getting longer and longer and longer. And you are shivering. I mean, you're freezing cold the last, like mentally, you're so fucking tired. I can swear on this. Yeah. Okay. You're so fucking tired and you're in so much physical pain. And like mentally, you're like, I'm going to have to go outside and it's like 30 degrees and you're shivering. You can't feel anything. And just to like get back up. I mean, it's entrepreneurship, textbook yeah. entrepreneurship of like, God, you just keep getting your the shit kicked out of you all day, every day, but you just like keep going back into war. And so it, it gets so hard that we had to have a coach to be like, guys, get the fuck out of here and go. Cause you just, you did not want to. So long story short, we did this race and we were like, I, I convinced Wheaties in the contract that if we won the race, that they were going to put us on the box of Wheaties. <laughs> and so we were just like, we are going to win this freaking race. Like we were, that was like, that was like our North star, like, you know, entrepreneurship. It's like, let's just win against our competitors. And here it was like, we just have to win to get on the box. And so we tried as hard as we could. Uh, we got fourth. So Dang. it was, it was unfortunate because first through third get money. Uh, so we lost by one lap and it's so unfortunate because one of the guys on the team, like wasn't a strong swimmer and there's penalties if everyone on the team doesn't complete the obstacle. And so there was this one guy that every single lap would get penalized. So we ended up actually running an extra seven miles versus what we got tracked for. So we would have gotten third and oh. fourth. So it's brutal, it's brutal, brutal, brutal. But and so that was while you were still at 
that General was, Mills. That was now General Mills. And just so going back to kind of the story of entrepreneurship as we were, I mean, this is intense training. Like you're an athlete, you know, like when you're dedicated and motivated and that's like you are eyes on the prize. We had to have been exercising no less than 40 hours a week, like no less than 40 hours a week of training. And then, you know, we were, Andrew and myself were both like had pretty good careers. So we were working like really hard to try and climb up the corporate ladder and then like leverage all the, the research and data and every, every like employee that I colleague that I worked with was like really smart. And so I would just constantly like ask people like, Hey, can you help me out this weekend? Or like, can I buy coffee for you? Can you answer these questions? And so we were, we were drinking coffee and specifically cold brew. Andrew has terrible acid reflux and I get really sweaty if I have hot beverages. So as roommates, we were just drinking cold brew coffee. And as you know, it takes 18 hours to make. It's a real pain in the ass. So were you making yourself at this point? Yeah, we're making it ourselves just out of a, just love the product and I'm super frugal. And so like for me to go to a coffee shop and spend five or six bucks a day to get a cup of coffee is absolutely insane. So I was like, okay, I'm kind of frugal. So I'm going to make it myself. And then it takes 18 hours. And it's like, this is such a pain in the ass. And, you know, we did what anybody started with. We got like, we actually went to Peace Coffee for, our, for like a coffee class because we knew literally nothing about coffee. We're just like, we love, and you know, Andrew, it's like, he's like this engineer. He's this flavor nerd and this geek. And so he's like, we have to make the best product on the planet. Like, Coffee's weird yeah. like that. It attracts people like yourself where it's like, it's an interesting product. Like this is an interesting thing. There's a, and especially making it at home. It's like, why wouldn't you, you can do it at a level that's probably better than what you're going to get in most cases. Mm-hmm. And it also attracts the engineering type, the mechanically minded people that want to tinker and play with recipes and learn about the grind size and all these different aspects. And it's, it, it's, it's interesting. Cause you, you kind of picture the barista, you know, you picture totally. the stereotypical barista as like very arty, very like almost like usually a musical artist of some sort mm-hmm. when the other side of it, the roasting side, especially, and especially manufacturing something like cold brew requires this intense level of like an engineering mind. Well, and it's so funny because we have never roasted. And so we've just always leaned on the people who know what the hell they're doing. Yeah. And, and Andrew, I mean, I remember I was at General Mills. We lived right off of Lake of the Isles in Uptown. And we'd get up at five in the morning every single day. And we would, Andrew, again, engineer meticulous. So we would we would A, B test every single variable from grind size. We had like sieves. So like we sieve out all the fines and we would like rate the distribution curve of grind size correlated to flavor notes. We... I mean, we tested every variable. And when you do that, all of a sudden, you just have a shitload of coffee. And so, because we we're just crazy, we're like, all right, we want to make the best thing that we can because we loved it for consumers. Mm-hmm. As a consumer, we like wanted a better cold brew at a cheaper price. And so we would go down to the Wedge Co-op, we'd get our, our whole bean coffee, we'd bring it back, we'd grind it. We realized that the distribution of grind size was huge. And after taking the class at um, Peace, it was like, that's really important. Like extraction is basically grind size, temperature and time. And so we're like, okay, that's one variable that we can like totally fix. Cause it was like, why is a coffee shop's cold brew taste so much better than when I make it? And then we just did the sieve test with our little shitty blade grinder. And it was like, oh, there is 100% the problem. Like yeah. go get a good freaking grinder. Yes. I cannot say that enough. <laughs> and it's, 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 I think you have to break through the conception people have that coffee can taste that different, but grind size is, if you have the blade grinder, you're over extracting fine grinds and you're under extracting coarse grind. So it's like you get the worst of both worlds. You get the bitterness and the sourness and then people go, well, I don't want to make it at home anymore. 
Exactly. And, and that was the, the huge challenge with cold brew early on in the industry is that like no one made a good product. So people in the bottled space, at least like coffee shops have always been good. Fresher coffee tastes better. Yeah. Right. And they have a commercial grinder, so it's going to taste good. But everyone early in the cold brew space, it just generally tastes like shit. And what what, like what year was this that you you were all starting to recipe 20, formulate? We were just just out of a personal need. 2013, we were making it ourselves. And then 2014, we got pretty serious about it. Again, I was at General Mills. I had access to all this data and our, our, the lifty had failed. And so we were like, okay. And we were, Andrew and I were running so much together. And it's like, you have so much time to talk about shit running. <laughs> so we're just like scheming on every run that was like this and that. And I'd basically just be like, okay, here's, here's what I'm thinking. Cause we like had this kind of idea of what made a good business. And it was like, it had to be searchable and it had to be consumable. And I was at General Mills, so I was like, it makes sense for something to be in like food or beverage because I kind of knew the industry and I had access to the data so we could research it. And so that was like what we wanted from a business. And then as I was at General Mills, there was like all these macro trends that were happening. It's like, okay, lower sugar, fewer ingredients, craft, um, personalized, and then, you know, organic and non-GMO and, you know, whatever, whatever certification. And it was like, holy shit, this cold brew thing like this is massive because like when you think about the like tra trajectory of consumers like my parents generation started drinking sodas and they went to the workplace and then they started drinking coffee our generation generally speaking energy drinks you go to the workplace and you have coffee but the next generation because of like third wave coffee and starbucks they're just drinking cold coffee right out of the gates and so they're not even touching hot coffee and so it was like this is not a fad like this is a macro trend that's going to continue to grow over time and so we're like all right and we didn't know anything about coffee right mm -hmm. we got our ass kicked because we didn't know anything about coffee like neither of us worked at coffee shops neither of us knew the supply chain we didn't know anything we just like love the category and like love the product and so we basically it was so i was at i was on the cheerios desk we started making it we were called cause coffee at the time and even I take it back even further, the original business model was we had a website called coldbrewcoffeerecipe.com. And all we wanted to do was drive traffic to our site and then get an affiliate commission driving Smart. products to Amazon. So yeah. that was like, that was the whole yeah. initial it's, plan. It's a great business model. Cause you look at like, well. you look at like Google trends is what we did. Cause I'm listening to all these podcasts of like smart passive income and entrepreneur on fire. And I was like, God, I just want to get a side hustle. You know, I read the four hour work week. It's yeah. like get a virtual <laughs> assistant and like make money on the internet, get that internet money. That was the plan. And then we like built this website, hired a virtual assistant, got all this blog stuff going. And then we like went to go set up our, after we did all the work, like idiots. And we went, went to set up our affiliate account. And at the time, Amazon, you could not become a paid affiliate in the state of Minnesota. And my assumption is that because Target is here and Best Buy is here, they lobbied against it. That's my guess. I don't know that, but like, why else would we not be able to do theory. it just in Minnesota? So we basically set it up. It, we're idiots, didn't do that research in advance. And then we're like, okay, well, we know that cold brew is still the thing. We're just not going to get internet money. Let's just like make the product. We are, are making it ourselves. So we were cause coffee and the niche was like focused on entrepreneurs and we were going to like donate all the profits to entrepreneurship. This is when like Tom's shoes were huge. So yeah. we're like, donate all the profits great whatever whatever we did a kickstarter or an indiegogo mm -hmm. and we reached out to all these like podcasters these famous guys that are focused in entrepreneurship sent some gift boxes and we're like okay if we can generate some money off this let's like pursue it 
so we like made we you know got a bottle a couple boston rounds we made these little kits we got a, hired a designer to do a label for cheap made it in our kitchen we're not even in the commercial kitchen i mean this is textbook illegal right here no food safety whatsoever you know we sanitized it and stuff but like not not certified here right and uh we launched it and it made money like nothing crazy it was probably like two to four thousand dollars mm-hmm. so like not much but enough to be like oh wow these complete strangers on the internet like bought our shit yeah and then instantly got a cease and desist letter from my cause water and we're like all right we got to change the name and maybe we should probably change the business model because there's no money to be made anyways <laughs> in the beverage space right. until you're at scale so there's not going to be able to give anything to anybody so we went through this whole naming process and then landed on busy because we're too busy to make cold brew and then uh and then when i was i moved over to 301 inc which is the venture capital division at general mills and so I just like, it, it reaffirmed that like this food and beverage industry is like exploding for growth. These huge brands are just like buying companies because they can't launch anything innovative, which I also saw at General Mills. And then it just like helped me understand how to raise money. And we were broke at this point. This is like 2015. We were like out of money. Andrew and I had each put in $25,000 through like research and development. Mm-hmm. We were going through co-packers, like lab. I mean, we spent so much money on R&D. And then... We were broke. Like this is like in uh, the end of August, and we're like, you know, it's the peak season's coming to an end, and we're like, we have no money. Like nothing's really working. We like cannot invest. We've been working so at on this it. point. Is it still a side hustle? A side hustle. <laughs> yeah, and we're like fifty grand in. <laughs> I was say like personal money. Here, yeah, all on R and D. Like because we flew out to co-packers and did like trial production runs because we were looking at like our plan was to do single serve shelf stable beverages. Yeah, that was like the plan. And so we had done all this research. At, at this point, who are the major players in the single serve RTD world? It was Chameleon and Stumptown. Isn't it, that was it, it? Yeah, and Chameleon out of Texas, Stumptown out of Pacific North yep. West Port- Portland. Portland. That's amazing to me. In La Colombe, to a certain extent, not you know they weren't even in it yet. They yeah, hadn't that, even launched. Actually, actually, yeah, they really draft lattes yet. That's that was crazy. like 2015, 2014. That's wild. And excuse me, 2017. So what is your work life balance? Well, I want to yeah, I was going to say it's not, but what does your day look like uh, while you're at General Mills in the venture capital division and also really running a a full scale business? Yeah. I mean, we'd get up at like five um, and we'd either, it'd either be a work morning or it'd be a workout morning, but you know, we're always working if we're working out together. Cause again, we're roommates, we get up, we would do some work for a couple hours. We'd go work, um, you know, we were both hustling too. So we were both working like 10 hour days at our jobs. And then we'd go home and work until like two in the morning. I mean, there was, I probably for from 2012 to 2018, I probably slept like five hours a day, every day, worked seven days straight. So it was non-existent, no relationships, no friends, work, 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 work. So it got to the point where we were broke. We had no money. We were ready to throw in the towel. Like this shit isn't working. We pitched every investor, at least that we thought, in the Twin Cities. No one would invest. And so... Food and beverage is a tough one with investors. For some reason, It's you need to find a unique type of person that gets the artistry. and Because it's flavor is a hard thing to get someone to invest mm-hmm. in. Because investors will not accept it tastes really good as an answer. No. Because they're, they're looking for, well, what's the point of differentiation? What's why, what couldn't a larger company do at the same scale with more resources? And you're like, but ours tastes really good. It's way yeah. better than what's out there. They're like, no. <laughs> it's like, because 
I'm sorry. It tasted some of this chameleon. You're like, this is this is the cold brew people are talking about. Like, okay, all right. If that's what people are drinking, then there's a huge opportunity here. Yeah. Well, as you you knew and I both know, like the problem is on like working capital. You got to buy inventory, and then you got to like, how are you going to get the product to the store? And the margins are so slim. And so until you're at scale, like it's a terrible business. And, and you learn, then you learn about cash flow. And <laughs> yeah. you're like, wait a second. <laughs> yeah. I, I have good margin. We're profitable, and I'm broke. How is this working? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So that's where we were. And we, like we would do money Mondays every Monday. It's like, fuck, how much, how big of a check do we both have to write to the business to like not have it shut down tomorrow. So finally we, we, every investor said, no, we couldn't do anything. And so we just applied to all these accelerators that like may have not even been that relevant, but we're just like, God, these people invest in startups. We're a startup. Let's just like, this is, this is our last resort. We got no other option. Yeah. And we applied to one called food X, which is in New York. And this is like first week of September and there was like a week of interviews and we were like way late we were super late and they're like okay you guys are in you have seven days to quit your jobs and move to new york and we'll give you thirty thousand dollars and that's like not enough money and we had to quit our jobs and we have a physical product so like it's not even close to enough money to live in new york let alone like run a physical company product company so we decided to do it and then uh you know we failed a bunch and here we are today so you did that and you moved, did. you moved out to New York, moved out to New York. We had no money. We slept on the floor of the office for three months. Um, as I kind of said, we like work constantly. Oh, so it's like an accelerated program. Is it, what's the duration of it? 13 weeks. Okay. So you move yeah, out yeah. there for, th- okay. I was thinking yeah. like permanently. I was like, well, they, like, wa- it, they want you to, right? Really? And, and like, if you, cause the goal of these accelerators is they like teach you how to raise money yeah. basically. And then you're supposed to raise money. And then the objective is for you to like stay in that city and build your business in that city. Um, we from Minnesota had no connections to New York City. There was already some cold brew brands there, so none of the local people wanted to invest because they're like, oh, "I'd rather invest in Wandering Bear that's like based here yeah. and I can like buy the product." So yeah, we like failed uh, and moved back home with our parents. <laughs> Didn't take a salary for two years after that. What were your key takeaways from that accelerator? Uh, was it was it definitely a worthwhile venture or? Yeah, I mean it. it, it more than anything, it gave me the vote of confidence to like quit my job and go full time. Mm-hmm. I mean, if people out there listening are working on a business part time, like if you have a single competitor that's working on it full time, you're you, done. You're not going to win. Like you will lose. And so it just like forced us to go full time. And as I mentioned, I have like no entrepreneurs in my family. I didn't know any entrepreneurs. And to be in this like program is a global program. So there was like nine other companies from around the world. And to just be with people that are as crazy and entrepreneurial as you are, as opposed to just being like working by yourself in a closet was awesome. Like so fun, moved to a new city, lived there, was so broke, but it was so fun because we were so broke and uh, met some awesome people. And you know, the big takeaways is fundraising is freaking hard and getting investors is very hard. But it taught us like uh, some of the t- tips and tricks on how to do it. I mean, we didn't raise money for another like six months after the program. And that was after we had like started making money and all of these things. So, um, you know, the big takeaways were just like fundraising is very hard and it takes a lot. And it forced you to knows. quit your job. Yeah. Yeah. And without that, we wouldn't have you know been successful and at all. Th- yeah. And that's it's pro- for our work week is probably a huge part of that happening is people saying I it needs to be a side hustle. I need to do it until I can pay my bills with the business. And I... I kind of disagree with that because like you said, if you've got a competitor that's on any sort of trajectory like you are and they're doing it full time and you're doing it as a side hustle, there's absolutely no way you're going to win that battle. 
I did the I did the reverse side hustle where I quit the job and then just started working like four other jobs uh, <laughs> that were, and this is kind of what was key in that is the the jobs I worked were not mentally taxing. Uh, I was working as a barista. I was weightlift coaching in the morning at my high school. I was uh, driving lift, and so these are all things that are so- somewhat time consuming, but mentally they were not. And mm-hmm. so even while I'm a barista, I can think as I'm doing this stuff about the business, and it you can actually have more focus through that. And you see a lot of people that think think it'll just take off at some point and then I can quit my job. And what you said is beyond true that the wake up that entire day is what you're doing seven days a week. And I'm trying to find that out of that balance right now and I'm not doing it very well. It's, I mean, it's tough. We're still there. I mean, I came from the office today, right? It's Sunday. We're recording this work today. Right? Yeah. And that's just like how it is. But now it's, at least now it's like a full integration where it was so hard doing a job that paid the bills and then going and doing something that you didn't get paid for and you were like actually spending a ton of money. So that was really hard. It's much better now, but um, yeah, I mean, it's it's super hard. And the only way, in my opinion, that you can go from side hustle, starting it and then transitioning is like if you're a service business where you're like doing graphic design or you're doing accounting work or you're a handyman, you know, something where you can actually do it like, you can get paid on the side, build a book of business up enough to where you can actually cut it. But like, you know, both of our businesses were in coffee and we're opposite seasonality, but like both of our businesses are seasonal and you only have so much time to prep and capitalize on the season that you're in that like you just, you cannot afford not to be doing it full time. There's always so many things you could be doing at any moment that it's, it's harder to decide what not to do. What changed where you started making money? Man, well, we just started breaking even uh, this year. So we've been losing money for four years straight, <laughs> painfully losing money. Uh, we're, that we sounds know, great. Yeah, <laughs> we, got a, we got a brewery and we got employees. Um, and we made, I don't want to call it the mistake, but we raised a lot of money. Um, we raised over a million dollars for one specific product line. We had a launch, we had a line of two ounce coffee shots, we raised a million bucks for it and it failed. And when we, the second that we raised that money, we now have a new board member and he, his, his objectives are going to be different than our objectives as entrepreneurs. His is like, grow, 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 raise more money, increase the valuation on paper, grow, grow, grow. And so they will tell you go hire this growth hacker, go spend, they're like, okay, you could spend $10,000 on Facebook ads in a month and learn slowly and make the right decisions. Or you could spend $10,000 in two days and learn faster. And that's what they like task you with, but you can't learn anything in two days. It takes time to learn. And so they put you in this tough model of like, you're focused on beating every quarter's revenue even though we're in a seasonal business, they're like, it's got to be up over the last quarter. And to do that, you have to like spend a ton of money on like people and slotting fees and whatever. But that's like probably not the right way to grow a CPG business. And when you go purely by volume numbers, you start to not focus on profitability and it's all about driving volume. And all of a sudden you're discounting more and you're going to sales channels that are probably not super favorable because of volume opportunities and brand equity becomes less important at the sake of growth. And 
that's that's what scares me the most about trying to grow too quickly is you'll force things that aren't there as opposed to if you don't have growth as your number one evaluator i think it adds a lot of value to the brand because you can be very picky uh and so you i'm trying to get my timeline straight here so at this point you're only two ounce coffee shots so 2015 we quit our jobs went to the accelerator in new Mm -hmm. york we basically launched in like March through May of 2016. We had a shelf-stable cold brew coffee concentrate. Mm -hmm. Nobody took it from grocery. It was an Amazon product, basically. We had a four-pack that we sold. It did pretty well. We were early. I mean, it's 2016. We were really the only cold brew on on, um, Amazon. So Mm -hmm. we were, like, doing decent. But the problem is no investor wanted to... Like, it was working, right? And we had no... We had no, like, um, overhead because Andrew and I weren't paying ourselves a salary. We didn't even have a paid office. Like, we were profitable in 2016 because we didn't spend any money on literally anything but inventory but the problem was no investor wanted to invest in a cold brew coffee concentrate that was shelf stable that was sold on amazon and so after going through the accelerator we like learned this like okay in order for an investor to really invest um there's got to be some like moonshot opportunity and so we had this insight that we we were selling a, a cold brew concentrate and it was on the internet, so like people knew it was a concentrate. And so what we found is we did a ton of research, like how are you using the product? Why'd you buy it, et cetera, et cetera. And we found out that a ton of people were like just straight up pulling off of the bottle before their morning workouts. Mm. And so we're like, oh shit, this is the idea. Like people are taking shots of a cold brew concentrate before they work out. Five hour energy is a billion dollar brand, let's go. And so, Cause in my head, I was like, I can freaking sell this story that we're going to be the next five hour energy. It's so logical. Like coffee is exploding. Cold brew is exploding. Five hour energy is declining, but it's a billion dollar category. You sell in a convenience store. That's the story. Let's go. And then, so that's this 2016. We had this idea 2017. We started working on it, developing it. We manufactured it. We tested the market and then we raised a million dollars cash, which is crazy. Like not coming from an entrepreneurial family, not getting paid a ton being in the Midwest. I was like, holy shit, a million dollars is so much money. And so this is like 2017, the end of 2017, November, we closed on that funding. And then honestly, by like March, so we have a full-time guy in the Philippines who was our virtual assistant, now our director of digital ops, been working with him since like 2013. Andrew and I closed on the funding and instantly flew out to the Philippines to meet him because we'd never meet him. Mm-hmm. We would see him every single day on video calls. So we flew out to the Philippines, and basically had this epiphany of like, holy shit, these shots are not working. Like nobody wants it. It doesn't even taste great. It sells okay on Amazon, but like, that's it. This is a very small opportunity. And so we had to do some serious soul searching. So we had literally just raised a million dollars like four months before. And we're like, okay, this whole premise is flawed. Like this is not gonna work. So at this point it's beginning of 2018 and we're like honestly panicking because we like just raised all this money. We hired all these people. We told this crazy pipe dream story and it wasn't working. And we're like, okay, like we got to do something. And at this point we had gone from a co-packer. We went to a different one. We got extorted for $40,000 is insane situation. We had all of our equipment in their facility too. So we had to like go down there and like bring the sheriff and guns and stuff like no joke, totally insane. And so this is when we moved into, so we're panicking. We had our first set order with UNFI for like, I don't know, it was like 
20 DCs because we're doing a national push with NCG in every one of their DCs. UNFI yeah. distributor. Yep. What's it, DC? Oh, a distribution center. Sorry. Okay. So, yeah, 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 we're getting our product in every single distribution center that UNFI had because we got a national rollout with national co-op grocers. Mm-hmm. Really tough story. But um, through that, we had to bring manufacturing back in-house which was not our business plan, but we had to because we literally didn't have any time. We already had the order. It had to be produced. So thank God Andrew is who he is, and he was able to actually do it. Um, But we launched it. We're manufacturing. We're making this product ourselves. And at this point, when you make product yourselves, you have, like, the capability to pretty much do anything. So the shots weren't working. We, Chameleon Cold Brew, who we had mentioned a couple times, had just sold to Nestle for $97 million. Mm -hmm. And I had access to data, and I saw that 80% of their revenue is coming from their multi-serve cold brew concentrate. So I was like, all right, we, we got to just like be a cheaper version than Chameleon. There's, there's a market there. No one's doing it right. We have all the flavors already developed. We have the manufacturing. We have the bottle supply chain. Like We can take a real stab at this. And so we launched it into grocery. We had a new bottle size. We had a new price. We had a new label. We launched it on Amazon. And then that was like our third try at retail uh, grocery. We got it into like our local stores. It did like okay. Um, But the real key story here is um, we looked at Amazon because we had already been on Amazon with the shots and the concentrates. So we already like knew the channel pretty well. And we saw that the number one selling cold brew was a bag of coffee actually from... um, it's a Minnesota brand too, which is so funny. They're like a block behind our facility. It's um, Big Watt? No. Um, they like donate. The, it's like, um, doesn't matter. Oh, uh, Tiny Footprint. Tiny Footprint. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So Tiny Footprint was number Sneaky one. Sneaky on the Minnesota. Amazon, by the way. They, <laughs> I mean, little do they know we are a block away from them and we ate their fucking lunch. And so they, <laughs> they were number one and our concentrate was not. And so we're like, all right, something's going on here. We already have the supply chain in place. Our roasters already making a blend that we think is the best and they have a bagging line. So let's Who just are you like, using for roasting at this point. <sighs> Someone in California. Okay. From our initial production. And they just were a good vendor for us. So we stuck with this guy in California. who was like a food service roaster, pretty large. And he like, we launched it and we, we're like, because we had the money from the fundraise, we were like putting a kind of a lot of money behind things if we thought it was going to work. So we dumped a ton of money into advertising and like we launched at an 1199 price point, which was way cheaper than everyone else. We made sure we spent so much on ads. Like if anyone in the country searched cold brew, like they were going to see busy. Hmm. So we launched that product and that like instantly became number one. And then we just like kept raising the price. And so that allowed us to like, put cash into the rest of our business. So we had pivoted again to the concentrates, larger format, lower price. It was working okay. Um, good, not great. Some stores be like, we got kicked out of Lakewinds. We got, we almost got kicked out of UNFI because it wasn't selling that great at Kowalski's. Um, and then takes us to summer of, so we're like fighting in this battle. The internet's killing it. We're killing it with Amazon and it's all co-packed. So Andrew just like press his order. We do our ads. That machine works great. Still have not figured out retail. Still really not succeeding in that channel. And it was not last, two summers ago, 2018. And the concentrates are in market and I'm sampling like seriously like 10 times a week. I mean, I'm sampling so freaking much. 
And we were in London Byerly's, we were in Kowalski's. And at this point I haven't had access to like Nielsen data in a really long time. And I'm a data guy. So that's like how I make my decisions, which is why we Nielsen data is a scan data at grocery. Yep, exactly. So I didn't have any data. So I didn't like know what was actually working, but the secret about London Byerly's is (laughs) they say how the, how fast products sell on the freaking tag. And I'm out there sampling and I'm like trying my hardest. And like, for some reason we haven't gotten kicked out of London Byerly's and people are buying it kind of. But then I see that there's this brand called Stoke, who I know of very well. Uh-huh. And they were moving like 30 units per store per week. And we were doing like five. And we're like, wait, they're moving 30 units a week and we're doing five. Like, what is going on here? And then I sampled and everyone's like, oh, this is a concentrate. I've just been like drinking it out of the bottle. Like I thought <laughs> you just pour it in and then you drink it. And I'm like, holy shit. So there's all these people that are paying like twice as much for a bottle that's smaller and they don't even know you're supposed to dilute it. So they just think this is like super ultra premium coffee as opposed to like a concentrate, which is a good value. So we're like, okay, this is, and so like we saw that happening, the category is moving to multi-serve ready to drink chameleon sold because of their multi-serve product. Um, we had had success. Multi-serve being just a big enough size that. Yeah, multiple servings per unit. Okay. You know, I, just like. I, a, I assume, but yeah, I didn't want. <laughs> no, it's, it's good to clarify. And it's just like a bag of coffee versus a K-cup, right? Yeah. You have multiple servings out of a bag versus these single serve grab and goes. Yeah. Because we failed on the shots for a ton of reasons. But a big, a big reason that it failed is single serve coffee. It's a terrible industry because it is the only category that competes with a f- $50 billion category called coffee shop. I've, and, and not, not only coffee shop, but when you think of this, the, the, the players in the single serve industry, you're not just competing against other cold brews. Someone's walking up and going, do I want, they're not saying I want a cold brew coffee. If they are, then yes, you are competing against the other single serves, but they're thinking I need energy. I want something that's healthy. And with the ability of large companies to force products into market, there's so many options for all these things. And so you start price competing. Then all of a sudden when you start price competing, you're losing your margin. And that's, yeah, the the multi-serve is definitely a less competitive market. Am I correct in that assumption? It's, it's way less competitive. Um, the challenge is that like, we're now competing, like we're super small, we're super small, but we're big enough where we're in like some real, real chains and super small coming from a guy that's like, well, mid market's 50 to 500. Well, <laughs> we're nothing even near that, right? We're still very, very, very small. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we're, and so, but we're competing with like Pepsi, and Dan and White Wave and Chobani and just these like we are the only independent brand in the category we're the only one nationwide that has any sort of like distribution so we're, we're in this category we're doing the concentrate that is wild by the way it's insane. that's insane to think about that it is there's something Scary. about food and beverage that because I think analysts are so on the ball that they see these companies with natural exponential organic growth and they scoop them up right at the right time where you're like, oh man, if that company would have just stayed. The biggest one I remember when I was in the beer industry was like Goose Island yep. got bought by Budweiser for 40 million. And at the time people were like, 40 million? These guys just got paid. And then three years later, uh, Ballast Point got sold for a billion. And I'm like, if they would have stuck with it for two more years independently, th- that would have been 10 times the number it's it is insane so you're the only independently widely distributed cold brew yeah and so we're we're excited but it took a lot of trials and, and failures as i said so we had this line of concerts and we were doing like vanilla mocha caramel 
but really all that sold was the black coffee. We mm-hmm. just had these other ones so that we could like protect shelf space. And so we like saw that the ready to drink format, 48 ounce bottle at like a $6 price point was like really what it needed to be to be successful after failing three times in grocery on the retail side of things. So we're like, okay, it's gotta be black coffee, unsweetened, $6 price point because we're organic so we can charge a little bit more, hopefully. Um, and then we needed more shelf space. So we're like, okay, let's just like think about this. This macro trend, consumers are shifting from brewing pots of coffee to buying bottles of coffee as a macro trend. Well, what works in the coffee aisle? Well, it's light roast, it's medium roast, it's dark roast, it's espresso, it's breakfast. It's all these like blends and roasts and no one was doing it. So we're like, holy shit, this is a compelling story. And so we were like, we had gotten kicked out of Lake Winds. We were on the verge of getting kicked out of Kowalski's. I mean, we were not in good favors with honestly anybody. It was mm-hmm. not selling well. And then we had to convince everybody to transition the concentrates into the ready to drink products. We launched with a light, medium and dark roast. And they're like, what the hell is busy doing? You had a 16 ounce concentrate and then you had a line of shots and then you went back to the concentrates (laughs) and now you're pivoting away from the concentrates again. Like what the fuck is wrong with you guys? As they're thinking about kicking you out, you're like, all right, we got a favor to ask. (laughs) And they're like, all right, this is your last chance, but you better, if, if you want it, like I need a free case for every store. If you want this to even exist. So we're like, all right, shit, this is really our last go at it. And so we did launch those. And we're just like, we learned enough to now be like, okay, unfortunately our industry is like heavily promoted coffee, especially in the beverage side. And so we just went out with a super strong promotional plan this year and now it's working great. And so this, what I have in front of me is not a concentrate. Nope. That's our ready to drink product. The only concentrate, well, I guess we still have a concentrate at London Byerly's. That's kind of a legacy product. But we sell a two-to-one concentrate on Amazon, and that's just an Amazon exclusive. Otherwise, everything now is ready to drink. And then we have our, we basically have a ready-to-drink line, light, medium, dark, espresso, breakfast. And then we have the same in a ground coffee line as well for the do-it-yourselfer. And then we just did launch that pitcher pack um, this week, which is like a large tea bag. And it's interesting that I think the reason in, in my mind that works that instead of doing flavors versus blends and different flavor profiles of coffees from the health side, I think a lot of people want black cold brew because it's the health benefits are great. It's high in antioxidants, no calories. It's really actually good for you versus an energy drink, which has all these things that you're not sure about putting in your body. The other side is I hate to admit it, but what Starbucks does really well is their flavored stuff Mm -hmm. in the same way that milkshakes taste good. Their frappuccinos are delicious. They're amazing. I'm, they've got 50 grams of sugar and whatnot, and you're not going to feel great, but they taste really good. And so going into flavors like mocha and vanilla, I think you compete more with larger players, whereas you, you're trying to develop the cold brew drinker. And it's that hyper niche that people are going to start looking for different flavor profiles that I think larger companies are like, eh, this is too small of a niche for us to focus on until it isn't. Well, and there's and a lot of the companies in, because we sell into the dairy case, right? It's the dairy buyer. And a lot of those companies, all they do is like primarily dairies. They're like a sugar and a milk company. And to sell an unsweetened black coffee, like you have to be a coffee company. And you it's either that or you got to be the cheapest product. And it's basically water with coffee flavoring in it. It's one of the two. And so that's where we've gone in really hard and just said, we're, we're coffee, we do roasted coffee, and we advertise those products online and say, hey, look, we specialize in cold brew. 
this product, we talked about the grind size earlier. This is perfect grind for cold brew. And when we advertise those products, it builds the brand equity that like we're the leaders in the cold brew segment. Yeah. And because all of our ground coffee products, we have a brewed version of it as well. Um, our goal is to acquire the customer through like an ad to get them to buy on our site. But even if they don't, they saw an ad and they may buy it in the grocery store and they're going to buy the liquid version because they're just lazy or they like convenience, as we like to say. Yeah. When you launch on Amazon and it starts doing well, what what type of things are you focusing on for an Amazon Amazon launcher? And let's talk this Amazon exclusive product. Mm-hmm. What were the th- what's the thought process of launching on Amazon? How do you grow on Amazon? Because we just launched last week, and we're again hype, uh, focusing on the hyper special niche of high end specialty coffee. There aren't a lot of people doing it. Uh, it's specialty roasters are notoriously snobby about if it's not a week off roast, it's not even worth drinking where I'm like, well, if we nitrogen flush our bags and we taste it six months out and it's still tasting better than the average coffee out there Mm -hmm. or still tasting really good, we should do this. What went into the success you're having on Amazon outside of the fact that you were definitely early on a really amazing trend? Yeah, we definitely have a very specific strategy that we use. So, you know, I like to just always think about it, A, as like a consumer. And step one is this is search. Amazon is a search engine. Yes, they're there to purchase, but like this is search. They are gonna be searching for something and they're gonna buy that thing that they searched for. Search, 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 right? And so, okay, that's step one. You gotta make sure you show up when someone's searching for it. Because if you're gonna go, it's just, I tell this story all the time, it's like, you're going to sample your product. Like if you're going to go try and sell coffee, you're going to go into a coffee shop or excuse me, a grocery store and you're going to sample the product there. You're not going to go to a soccer game and be like, Hey, would you like to sample this coffee and buy it? It's like, no, you sell where people are there to purchase. So Amazon people are there searching, get in front of them on the lot that they're looking to buy. So for us, like it's cold brew, cold brew coffee, coarse ground coffee. Those are the keywords that we go after hard. Because we know that the customer that's searching for those is going to buy something and let's make sure that they're going to buy us. So that's like first and foremost, keyword stuff, make sure you're leveraging search. And then you have to have reviews because again, put your consumer hat on, like you got to have as many freaking reviews as you possibly can and it's illegal and everyone fakes reviews. You got to have reviews, take it with that with what you will, Um, but you got to have a lot of reviews because you're not going to buy something as a consumer that doesn't have any reviews. No one's going to do that. So you got to have reviews. And then the the standard stuff is like beautiful photography, tell your story. We're in the food and beverage space. So like taste is king. So whatever those taste notes that matter most for you, that you know why you sell the product and why a consumer is going to buy it, you have to lean in on that. And so those are like the general things. There's much more tactics of like which keywords to go after, especially for you is like, okay, specialty coffee. All right. That is a clear keyword that we don't go after which makes perfect sense but what we'll do is like we just launched our pitcher pack product and it's new and it's not as much search so what we'll do is when we turn on that campaign or launch the product we're, we're lucky now where we can launch it in a profile that already has 2,000 reviews but what we'll do is we'll also turn on an auto campaign through seller central and it basically just like puts your product in a bunch of like keyword searches and on other product profiles And then you can pull that report and you can see where people like, what did they do before buying your product? So, so you may find that like 
people are actually searching for folly coffee or that they're searching for specialty light roast coffee or you know some mm-hmm. combination of keywords that you may not have thought of the term is called long tail where you can get very specific on a keyword that you have a high conversion rate for and then that's the best because there's lower traffic on those words so the cost per clicks are lower so your cost to acquire that customer is even lower so we do that and then once we find keywords that are working really well um, we pull them out of our auto campaign using a negative we basically it's called negative keywords you throw the keyword that worked from your campaign you put it into your negative campaign and then you create a specific new campaign just for that keyword and then you make sure that you use that keyword in your profile because the goal is to use paid ads to climb up to get search rankings to get sales and then to stop doing paid ads so that people buy it organically so some of the measures that people will like look at is a term called ACOS which is advertised cost of sale and the term the the measure that we look at is ad spend to total revenue because I'm okay with doing a, a very low converting banner ad because I know that it drives a ton of impressions and that's the only place that you can actually have a marketed brand message so with search it's all just like your your product and whatever your product title is is all that you get where if someone searches cold brew I want to show up on the top, especially during COVID. This was huge for us because coffee shops were shut down and most cold brew, generally speaking on the internet, kind of tastes like shit. And so our message was just coffee shop quality at home, busy cold brew. And then we showed our grounds and our liquids. So you knew that we do liquids, we do grounds. This is a coffee shop quality product that you're used to purchasing at Starbucks or whatever. And now you can get it at home. What, What kind of spike did you see during COVID? Dude, it was crazy. We got really lucky. (laughs) it's so bad to say but it's so true well it's like and it's tough because like we have friends that own cafes and stuff and you know they're hurting and i don't like to you know it is what it is this this is what i say about it i go look you have to compartmentalize during this time if you tried to take on the gravity of this situation in every way you communicate or talk about everything all the time it's you'll never get anything done and just the sheer emotional toll is ridiculous and so i do the same thing where it's like okay well what good did happen i was literally like i need to do an entire episode where all i do is vent by myself about what good happened just so I don't go absolutely insane during this. Well, it's funny because earlier we kind of talked about, you know, doing what it takes to like make money, especially with investors. And we went down this path where we were actually private labeling uh, a coffee shops, cold brew for their own. And so we were making their product. It was our spec. Like we did all the work. Uh, It was our blend and we made a four to one concentrate sold it to the coffee shops in a bag and box and they would dilute it on store on site super low margin tough tough business i mean as you know it's super competitive and that all went to zero and it was like that i mean in 2018 i think it was like two-thirds of our coffee purchasing was private label so like Mm. we were buying copious amounts of coffee with zero like zero margin Mm. like literally zero dollars zero percent margin but just to like keep the overhead and whatever, just revenue keep, going, keep people working yeah. and whatever, um, that all went to literally zero, like overnight, that whole business just went to, went to nothing. And then fortunately, um, the rest of the business made up for it. And, and then some, <laughs> I, I have to, you were one of the first people I thought about during all this. I go, Vizzy's gotta be crushing it right now on Amazon specifically. Yeah, it's, it, I mean, Amazon's been good, but like, man, we got to fucking break up Amazon. I am, I, it's, it's the worst drug ever because the business is there, the revenue's there, but like, 
I mean, they're, they are literally stealing our inventory and selling it against us. I kid you not. And there's nothing that we can do about it. So it's like the worst, best thing ever where our business is up dramatically. We're, you know, we're the number one bestseller in the category and we're the only one in the top five that's not, it's called vendor central. So we don't sell to Amazon. We just sell through Amazon as like a fulfillment center and Mm -hmm. they give them a commission, but they, our inventory that we own sits on our balance sheet as inventory is sitting in their warehouse. And I don't know what goes on with it. The only mm. thing I know is that I look at my profile and my products are shipped and sold by amazon.com and I don't sell to amazon.com and I own the brand. So no one's selling to amazon.com. So they're literally taking my inventory and selling it against me on my own profile at a lower cost. It's insane. So pros and cons to Amazon for any listeners out there. Yeah. Uh, getting started on Amazon's been it was so tough. And we're working with Voyager, who's another uh, local group here. I got that recommendation from John Waller over at Humble Nut Butter. Oh, great. And a big part of it was just like, okay, what can we do during this time? What can we, what other sales channels can we look at outside of wholesale, outside of grocery and our small online business? And fortunately, we've been able to build that during this time and been, been able to get a little better there. But the Amazon world is, it's, it is incredibly intriguing because of the number of users and it is freaky that Amazon's basically the Google of products now. That if you're looking for products, most people just skip Google and go straight to Amazon. Even if they don't purchase it from there, it's where they find products. Yep. And so there's there's this other side of people looking for products of a type. They go to Amazon first to see what's out there. Because they when you Google, sometimes you'll get a product, you don't get the price, you don't get a full description. It With Amazon, it's, it's basically a search engine where you'll get the price of what they should be paying for it, a full description. There's probably business description. And it's exciting, but also scares scares me quite a bit that Amazon could literally one day just decide, hey, we're going to change how we do everything. And your margins are now thinner or you're, or we're doing it this way, or we're switching completely to only pushing our private label stuff. Or if you don't do it, it's, it's, it is quite, it's, it's freaky when you think of how much there's, there's no competitor where you go, well, that will pick up speed and and pick up. But so I, I struggle with it, but it's, it's almost like you kind of have to be there at this point because of the number of users. It's just a sheer scale. And I mean, they do everything. They fulfill, they pick, they deliver, they sell, they merchandise, they market. I mean, it is scary. When they bought Whole Foods that day, I was like, Oh man, this is how far does this have to go before someone does step in and be like, okay, Bezos, like, come on, dude. Yeah. It's, (laughs) It's insane. So we're we're trying to get off Amazon. I mean, our objective is like acquire customers on Amazon because it's super cheap because we can leverage search and then put stuff on our packaging to get them to our site and huh. collect that freaking email address and then email the hell out of them. Because we, we, we want to like transition everyone off of Amazon. Um, it's great for customer acquisition, super cheap. Like we're profitable on the first order, even with a paid um, acquisition. But I mean, they're stealing our inventory and selling it against us. And that cost me twice. Right. So like it's, there's nothing I can do. So it's, it's scary. Yeah. It's scary. And so by that, you mean that they're, you ship it to them and then someone buys it and they get the cut for that. Or you mean literally stealing? They are literally stealing my inventory from their warehouse. Like they're taking it and then they sell it against my own product. So I had to pay for the product that they shipped. And then that was a lost sale of my product as well. So I literally lost twice every time they do that. And I had to come out of my cash. And what happens when you call them out on it? They don't do anything. They give you a stock answer. You cut a ticket because there's no one you can freaking talk to. You literally can't pick up the phone. 
There's no one you can talk to. So, and this has been happening for like a year. I've probably submitted a hundred tickets hmm. about this thing. And there's nothing I can do. And like people just look at it like, oh, you're the best seller. You're doing great. And it's like, yeah, we're doing fine. But like I'm getting robbed here, like serious cash. Huh. So it's insane. So just everyone be careful, but like it's the fastest way to get money. And it doesn't matter until like the, the dollars are worth it. Mm-hmm. But like I can't even get a hold of the person that I would sell to on Amazon. They're just like, cr- it's crickets. It's insane. Going on a completely different lane here. What was it like starting a business with a best friend? It's both as because you have a personal relationship, but also, like you said, partnership divorces is, is one of the major causes of businesses going under. What's it been like? How have you been able to maintain a good relationship, not only professionally, but personally? It's tough. Um, we're we're good at it. I'd say we, he's an engineer. You know, I'm a, I don't know, marketer, I guess. would probably be the best way to describe myself. And so we have very similar hobbies, but very different um, personality traits. So he's a textbook engineer. He's generally risk averse. He's very process driven. Um, you know, very organized, likes things clean and neat. And, you know, I am the guy that's going to take the risk first, drive, drive to something, take, take the horn, take the bull by the horns and like steer the ship to a certain direction. And he's going to help us get there. And we just make sure that we have very different roles and responsibilities. And we both like the roles and responsibilities mm-hmm. that we do. So that's super helpful. And then we're just like really mature about it. I mean, we're roommates too, still to mm-hmm. this day. So like I see him all day, every day and vice versa. And me like hang out together. We work together. We work out together. Generally speaking, it's all work related. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we've always been so broke that it's just been like, oh, we're both broke and like we're there to pick each other up and, we, you know, we trust each other. Um, who knows what happens if we get successful? You know, that's that, what they always mm-hmm. say, more money, more problems. Um, but we're just very like conscious about it and we're both very rational. So if there's an issue, it gets brought up. Um, it, it probably helps because like we have a third board member and we have these, like, I mean, it's basically a marriage because we have a contract in place. And so we're just like very logical. We both know that like no conflict is worth it because both of like we're broke except for the business and all of our personal like um, net worth, if you will, is in the company. So that's like the, the goal. Like, drive value into the company and anything that doesn't do that is just like a sacrifice and mm-hmm. it screws both of us over. I mean, like both understand that we've talked about it. So we don't really have too many conflicts. Like if it's operations, like I'm not even going to get into, I'm like, I'm, yeah. I don't even care. I'm not even going to get in the weeds. Like I'm going to ask questions, but I'm not, if he thinks we got to do it done. Great. And if I think we got to launch a pitcher pack and then espresso blend and a breakfast blend, you say, great. I believe it. Let's go. Mm-hmm. So we just trust each other. That's a big part of it. Um, it could be, tough um but generally speaking again our hobbies our hobbies are the same like we both to like kick back after work drink beer and we just end up talking about work um, <laughs> for better or worse but um yeah it's pretty good it works it works for us i certainly could not work for most people as my guess but it works good for us and what you said is key i think the reason starting a business with a close friend gets a really bad stigma is because typically people who are really close friends have very similar personalities and mm-hmm. interests what you said that is key is you have similar hobbies, but what you enjoy in a role at a company is wildly different. I emphasize that so much because you get so many people that get each other excited about the business. Oh my God, we should start this together. Well, okay, we'll just do basically a 50-50 split. Then you get two people with the same strengths 
and the same bl- glaring weaknesses and they it, it doesn't work and so role specialization having an interest in different differing roles that you're happy with too you don't want to force someone okay well we need someone to be the engineering side i don't want to do it more than you don't want to do it versus that's what he wants to do that's what you want to do it's it's so funny i mean we every saturday morning we go on an extremely long exercise and we've been doing this since we started the 24-hour races so for like seven years every saturday morning we do it and we'll like you know listen to music early in the morning get you know it's saturday morning so we have the whole week of like information and shit hit the fan all week and then we'll go bike and you know we'll do it for like three hours four hours mm-hmm. long ride and then all of a sudden, like 90 minutes into it, we, we won't have said a word to each other. And we're just like, and Andrew's like, shit, man, I was just thinking about the back of the house. We need this piece of equipment and that piece of equipment. And I'm like, and my head is in a completely different area. I'm like, all right, this product format, this is how we're going to get into this retail store. Here's the new presentation format. And like, just naturally, there's just no overlap in what we're thinking about yeah. or doing, but they both are required. And when you think of efficiency, that would need, that's, when yeah. you have a small company, that's what has to be done. If you have two people thinking about the same thing at the same time, you're wasting resources. Exactly. And you have to think of your time as a resource because <laughs> there's not very much of it. And you can only work so many hours in a week, even yep. if it is 100 hours. Exactly. But th- that puts us uh, over an hour here. Wow. Um, yeah, that went quick. It was fast. Really information dense. But, th- man, congratulations on the new launch. Uh, this you. is Yeah, this is great. Got a really nice, super balance. I think the body you landed at was really nice. I think, Good. I think so many people with cold brew think it has to be strong or people won't want to pay for it. And mm-hmm. I found the opposite. They want it to taste. So they, they're probably drinking that concentrate being like, this is like motor oil cold brew. Yeah. Yeah. Well, th- the key that we learned and why we're so focused on just like light, medium, dark, basically blends and roast profiles is that 85% of consumers cream their coffee. 85%. Of consumers cream their coffee that's why when people ask me oh you probably hate when people do that i go if a starbucks drinker puts cream and sugar in their coffee that's who we want to come over to specialty coffee yep. because i don't want to compete against other specialty roasters that's such a small community of people mm-hmm. the group that mocks that is it's not going to grow the category it's not going to grow coffee people don't want to come over if they feel like they're going to get chastised for that but i did not know it was 85 percent. where you yeah. where, where, where's that data coming from do you remember walmart specifically so they do their consumer research that came from the creamer buyer at walmart so they, they know their numbers and that's nationwide we and we've done a similar survey on our site ours was like 83 percent um but yeah they got they said 85 percent very specifically and so that's an interesting point because people probably have a very, very specific routine of cream and sugar. So for someone to already add sugar into a product takes away flexibility of the end consumer. And they're like, well, it's a value play because now they don't have to buy their own sugar. They want to do their routine. That is a really, really good point. Well, and that's why we're just like unsweetened black coffee. And I don't want to be a part of a fad, right? Like if you think about the creamer aisle and like diets in general, like keto paleo vegan like it's always going to be changing like there's always going to be black coffee in that cup first so just go there and so the stuff they're going to add into it is going to change it's going to be coconut oil this year it's going to be butter this year and then year from now you're going to figure out that's really terrible for you and now sugar is good for you again and that's a really really good insight i think that really this product 85% 85% of people are going to do something to it. And so yep. you're providing a base for what they're doing at home. Exactly. 
That's a really cool way to end this podcast. All right. So that's how I'm going to do that. Thanks for coming in, man. Thanks for having me.